0: Oscar, followed
1: by Jack Nicholson. Bertolt Brecht said that art is not a mirror, but it is a hammer in which,
0: to, not a mirror to hold up
1: to society, but a hammer in which to shape it, and so I guess this is ours. The, uh, I, well, it can be argued that the hammer of art isn't to, uh, now just shaping society, it's smashing it. And that is particularly true when we consider the arena of traditional family values, what may also be termed Christian culture. This series will examine how Hollywood, here being used as a broad metaphor for the entire entertainment industry, has waged an undeclared and often unintended war against the biblical worldview upon which Western culture was founded. The greater tragedy, however, is the way in which we, as consumers, have become willing allies in this axis of evil. A decade ago, we produced a five-part exposé on this subject that was popularly called the Unholy Hollywood Collection. On numerous occasions since, we've considered updating the series, both to make it more relevant to a new generation, and also to document the steady decline that has taken place in the last ten years. There are two reasons why we've chosen instead to represent the original series here. The first is priorities. We're a small ministry with many other projects we want to do and not enough money and personnel to produce them. Why take a perfectly good presentation and try to make it better when there are other important subjects that have never been addressed at all? Second, we're not sure that enough people even care anymore. For example, when the first Hell's Bells video came out in 1990, it was a bestseller. When Hell's Bells II, a far better series, came out a decade later, we were shocked by the level of indifference. It seems that much of the church today has raised the white flag of surrender before the armies of popular culture. As in Nehemiah's time, many people have forgotten the language of God's kingdom and instead speak the language of Ashdod, of destruction. They don't want to be bothered with the truth. But still a remnant and a hope remains. I trust that you watching right now are among those who still care, who still want to understand the times and know what it is the church should do. For your sake we have re-released the original series in this less expensive, better quality, and easier to use format. Some of the material on this DVD is now a little dated. There are obviously newer movies, shows, and bands that could have been used that would make it a bit more relevant to today's generation. But please understand that the principles we use, and the truths we appeal to, are timeless. That they're as relevant today as they were when they were first recorded. In fact, if you mentally substitute examples of today's pop culture for the ones we use in this series, South Park for Beavis and Butthead, for example, or Quentin Tarantino for Martin Scorsese, you can powerfully illustrate one of the main points made in this series. That is, that hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. And now a few quick points before we get started. First, this series is definitely a wake-up call. And like all wake-up calls, it isn't always pleasant or accommodating. Some of the material we're about to consider will be pretty disturbing. Please know that we've censored it where we could, but not at the cost of muting either our message or its urgency. Therefore, viewer discretion is definitely advised. Second, this series in no way endorses any new forms of governmental censorship. We the producers are thankful for our First Amendment right to critique the entertainment industry we equally supportive of their right to free expression. And finally, we want to gratefully acknowledge those artists and producers in the industry, Christians and non-Christians alike, who are producing works that are noble, lovely, and true. This series is dedicated to them in prayer that there may be many more.
2: Father forgive me, help me God, to stop doing this. I don't know where these thoughts are coming from. I can't keep them out of my head. Please God, take them from my mind. Deliver me from all my horrible habits! (sighs) The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth
1: my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness, please.
0: You're kind of shy. Is he under yet? Isn't it nice
2: when they make it this easy? <laughs> the serpent's tongue, Johnny boy.
0: Yeah. And that's the most natural thing in the world. We're swimming in
2: big commercials Every night and every day All the seductive perfume sales Provocative lingerie Men and women starting sexual fires With no regard to consequence Forsaking truth and the fear of God. It's a death.
1: be great if it was that easy. But shouting cut, unplugging your television, or moving to a cabin in some wilderness isn't going to stop the action. Like it or not, technology has placed the modern media industry in a position of unprecedented power and influence. In the words of one industry executive, it has become the most powerful force in the world today. America has evolved into a nation where there are more televisions than toilets, where the average citizen spends five to six hours a day living in a world of electronic images and sounds, and where we spend far more on entertaining ourselves than we do on education and healthcare combined. In the words of one noted media expert, the fact is incontrovertible. People today live by the media whereas once they lived by the book. Perhaps most disturbing of all, the situation scarcely improves among those who should know better. People whose religion challenges them time and again to not focus on the shifting shadows of a world at war with God. A survey conducted by one of the most respected missions organizations in the world revealed that the average professing Christian in America spends six times more on entertainment than in all forms of Christian giving combined. And when we look at another key area of giving, that of our time, only God knows how many more hours are filled with our pursuit of amusement than with prayer, worship, Bible study and Christian service. The purpose of this series is to hold the mirror of God's Word up before the face of American culture, particularly Christian America. And then, once having seen what we've become, our prayer is that we will repent, turn from our sins, and allow the Heavenly Father to change us into the likeness of His dear Son. Let's continue by looking more closely at the power of the media man as well as the philosophy that more and more
0: seems to guide his hand. The mass producing and consuming of images has transformed the way you and I see and understand the world.
1: These images create the patterns of what our behavior is going to be. In Torch Song Trilogy, Tony Award-winning playwright Harvey Fierstein tells the story of drag queen Arnold Becca. The movie, Mr. Fierstein freely admits, is designed to teach as well as entertain.
0: Start with homosexuality so misunderstood. Hopefully, something like Torch Song, instead of looking to see how they're going to take it, hopefully they can open their eyes, take a look at what we're doing, and and have a new view of life.
1: Harvey Firestein accomplished his goal with the backing of a powerful pro-homosexual film lobby and a Hollywood establishment where four out of five people support gay rights. Millions of people were given a very sympathetic portrayal of a homosexual lifestyle, not just to entertain, but in the words of Mr. Firestein, to give them a new view of
0: life, Have a new view of life. Well, oh, uh, media saturates our culture, we live in a culture which has become acclimatized to having a constant input and a constant fix of, uh, of television, radio, people get uh,
1: disoriented. Ted Baer is a writer and Emmy-nominated producer who, as chairman of the Christian Film and Television Commission, is active in bringing a Christian perspective to Hollywood. He hosts a weekly television program and has made numerous guest appearances on
0: some of the most popular
1: talk and news shows in America
0: out to you that 72% of the teenagers say they want to copy what they see in sexually explicit or violent films. In fact, uh, several studies have shown that uh, 22% of teenage crime is directly related to what they see in violent movies and television programs. There have been over 3,000 studies done in this regard and uh, the studies are just conclusive on the fact that there's an impact
1: while the modern media industry typically attempts to deny any connection between what they produce and how its consumers behave occasionally an honest voice is heard above the din. visual imagery can be brilliantly effective in reinforcing established ideas or in shaping opinions viewers simply cannot help but be rippled by the emotional, gut-wrenching influence of huge, moving color images backed by stereo sound. Producer-director George Lucas, who worked on four of the ten top-grossing films in motion picture history, had this to say in an address he gave to film students at the University of Southern California. Film and visual entertainment are a pervasively important part of our culture, an extremely significant influence on the way our society operates. People in the film industry don't want to accept the responsibility that they had a hand in the way the world is loused up. But, for better or worse, the influence of the church, which used to be all-powerful, has been usurped by film. Film and television tells us the way we conduct our lives, what is right and wrong. And David Putnam, producer of the award-winning Chariots of Fire and The Mission observed, Movies are powerful, good or bad, they tinker around inside your brain. They steal up on you in the darkness of the cinema to form or conform social attitudes, in short, Cinema is propaganda. There are many ways to control or manipulate a society. Laws, wars, taxes, and interest rates have all been used quite effectively to this end. But at its very core, a society, or perhaps more properly, a culture, is more about values and beliefs than issues of political, military, or economic power. And that's why any struggle for the control of a culture must appeal to the mind and the heart by addressing both the ideas that power the intellect and the images that fuel the imagination. Put simply, the usurper needs to rely heavily on propaganda. A new concept is
2: born. I want my MTV! Today's image is tomorrow's memory. I think MTV is going to change a lot of kids.
1: I choose MTV, finally a channel for the way you think. The most successful propaganda uses the arts. While political or economic theory may persuade the intellectual elite, it is art's ability to subtly appeal to the heart and mind that makes it such a powerful force for cultural change. For this reason, successful revolutionaries have always paid special attention to the music, literature, and films of their time. Censoring art they viewed as ideologically impure, as well as commissioning works that were consistent with their revolutionary philosophy.
2: In every strong and healthy society from the Egyptians on, the mass had to be guided with a strong hand by a responsible elite. Let us not forget that in TV, we have the greatest instrument for mass persuasion in the history of the
1: world. Hitler, for example, relied heavily on Lenny Riefenstahl, who produced Olympia and Triumph of the Will, two movies that served as compelling advertisements for the Third Reich. These beautiful and ultimately frightening films, along with Nazi-sponsored music, literature, and architecture, became a powerful force in seducing an entire culture into accepting the ideas of a madman. Likewise, Vladimir Lenin established a state school for cinematography just two years after the communist takeover of Russia. Always the visionary, he saw film's potential influence in helping sell Marxist ideology, describing the motion picture as the most powerful tool for shaping men's minds ever invented skilled in the art of persuasion and propaganda, both Hitler and Lenin understood what an expert in communication would articulate a generation later. If you can write a nation's stories, you needn't worry about who makes its laws. This same expert went on to say, today television tells most of the stories to most of the people most of the time. It's the most persuasive medium we have. Norman Lear, the man behind two of the most revolutionary and influential shows in television history, All in the Family and Maude, knows a lot about the propagandizing potential of television. His Environmental Media Association seeks to sensitize a viewing audience to environmental issues by persuading Hollywood producers to include environmental themes in their shows. The association claims in its literature Films, television programs, and music have a unique ability to infuse the popular culture with a particular message. This persuasive power is widely recognized by other members of the media elite, at least when you get them behind closed doors. Researchers from George Washington University, for example, discover that Hollywood's writers, directors, and producers view themselves as crusaders for social reform in America they see it as their duty to restructure our culture into their image these researchers discovered that two out of three media personalities interviewed believe that television and movie entertainment should be a major force for social reform these people aren't stupid proof that the modern media industry has this type of persuasive power is literally all around us. Companies, for example, spend billions of dollars a year in television advertising in order to influence the viewer in regard to their product. Would they do this year after year if it didn't work? At least one Hollywood company exists for no other reason than to analyze scripts scene by scene in order to determine where and how companies can best plug their products into a feature film. Millions of dollars are spent for the privilege. Millions more are shelled out in order to tie a company in with a particular film promotion. Why? Because it works. People are persuaded. Consider this. When Risky Business came out in 1983, sales of the Ray Ban sunglasses worn by Tom Cruise went up 1,400%. In the movie The Doors, rock idol Jim Morrison was portrayed wearing authentic clothing from the 60s, including a hang tan shirt. After seeing the film, young people began searching thrift stores everywhere for the shirt, inspiring the company to reintroduce the original design. The result? about $105 million in sales. The 1955 movie Rebel Without a Cause featured scenes of teenagers slashing tires. After the film's release, there were hundreds of tire slashings in places where this type of vandalism had never occurred before. The year before the movie Bambi came out, deer hunting was a $9.5 million a year industry. Then came the touching scene of a yearling deer being orphaned by a hunter's bullet. Deer hunters subsequently spent only $4.1 million, a drop of over 50 percent. Clark Gable bared his chest in It Happened One Night, and sales in the undershirt industry plummeted. Marlon Brando played a biker in The Wild One, and leather jackets became one of the hottest fashion statements of the decade. And thousands of men and women flocked to Navy recruiting stations after viewing Top Gun. If movies can sell a style of dress or a career choice, aren't we being naive to think that they can affect our beliefs concerning deeper issues like sexuality, violence, rebellion, or religion? And let's remember, these moral issues are typically much more than mere props or plot devices. They often provide the very stage upon which the action unfolds. Tom Cruise, for example, may have made Wayfarer sunglasses look cool in risky business. But the movie spent a lot more time and effort glamorizing premarital sex and teen rebellion. It was great the way her mind worked. No guilt, no
0: doubts, no fear. Just this shameless pursuit of immediate material gratification.
1: Are we honestly to believe that this message had no effect on its audience? While at the same time the sales of sunglasses were going through the roof? What makes all this even scarier? is that studies now show that there's really no defense against this propagandizing influence other than simply turning it off.
2: To win by everything on your list and be first out of the mall.
1: In a PBS special entitled Consuming Images, Bill Moyers and company examine the way in which the modern media industry creates consumers. People whose lust for material goods theoretically drives our market economy. Dr. John Miller of Johns Hopkins University made this sobering observation. The frightening thing is that it has become clear now that simply recognizing the artificiality of something does not ensure immunity to that thing. Simply knowing that you're an object of propaganda is not enough in itself to armor one against the appeals of propaganda. Popular actor Tom Hanks echoed this observation when he acknowledged The film industry can capture an idea and make it glamorous and gorgeous so that the audience isn't even aware that they're embracing something they never would have embraced before. Consider The Boat, a tense thriller about heroism aboard a German U-boat that actually had American audiences rooting for the Germans. And then there's the Academy Award-winning Silence of the Lambs, a movie that incredibly was able to make a hero out of Dr. Hannibal Lecter, an impossibly cruel murderer with a taste
0: for human flesh. How do we begin to covet Clarice? We begin by coveting what we see every day. And don't your eyes seek out the things you want.
1: Anthony Hopkins, the Oscar-winning actor who portrayed Lecter, noted repeatedly how surprised he was with the positive response he got from fans concerning the character, particularly from women who viewed the clever cannibal as both intriguing and sexy. The power of cinematic images to influence an audience's beliefs is such that psychotherapist Jeffrey Hill, in his book Illuminating Shadows, argues that the movie theater is a modern equivalent of a tribal dream house, where the viewer participates in a contemporary ritual with distinct religious overtones. He writes, besides the emotional impact of films, there is something deeper about them that changes our lives. Our participation in these sentiments helps alter the consciousness of society, either for good or ill, depending on the myths portrayed. Of course, there's another argument that supports this idea that we are profoundly influenced by what we listen to and watch. And for the Christian, this argument should be the most compelling of all. Throughout the Bible, God tells us to be careful what we set before our eyes and ears. From his opening account of man's creation and fall, we're warned that Satan's primary tactic is to take an aspect of God's creation and then dangle it seductively before our eyes, subtly perverting its character or use, singing out a song of deception, waiting patiently for the trap to be sprung, and sin's wages to exact their terrible price. Having fallen, man then becomes the object of God's redemptive love. Through his word and finally his son, he progressively revealed truth and now encourages us to embrace that truth rather than the deception that spew forth from our fallen nature and the spiritual darkness that rules over it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, noble, just and pure, whatever things are lovely and of good report, if there is any virtue in anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land. Set your heart on what pertains to higher realms, where Christ is seated at God's right hand. Fix your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. There are hundreds of verses throughout the Bible that say the same thing, that point out the deceitful nature of our hearts that expose our vulnerability to spiritual seduction, that warn us of our enemy's guile, that exhort us to embrace heaven's truth, and that plead with us to serve God with all our hearts and have nothing to do with the beguiling works of darkness. One would never know these verses were in the Bible if it were simply left to the testimony of many Christians' lives. Today, Millions of believers spend time speculating as to the identity of the Antichrist or how credit cards and universal product codes might relate to the mark of the beast. Little do many of us realize that in a very real sense we're spending hours a day sitting before his image, listening to his deceptions, traveling a road of celluloid and sine waves that only too often leads into the very belly of the beast.
0: I mean, you realize who goes to see movies. Eighty percent of them are between the ages of 12 and 22. And you know what kids like? What? Well, this may sound silly to you, but kids go completely ape if you do three things in a picture. Defy authority, destroy property, and take people's clothes off.
1: Given the destructive content of so much of today's movies, music, and television, it's understandable that concerns about communist plots and satanic conspiracies have been raised. But while socialism and the occult are very real influences in Hollywood, the primary force behind all this visual and oral wickedness is nothing more sinister than the
0: love of the almighty dollar. Socialist views. So there are a few ideologically inclined people in Hollywood. Uh, There have been two studios that have been known for the left-wing stance for many, many years. In the middle, there are a lot of people who are just in Hollywood trying to make money. You know, that's the name of the game. That's why they call it an industry and they just want to be supported in the manner that they've become accustomed. Roger Quinn had an incredible way of um, a formula, making up a formula for his pictures, his exploitation films. And in Boxcar Birthday he told me, remember every 15 pages, nudity. Pages. not In the script. And whether it's uh, a leg, uh, full nudity, or maybe just the suggestion of nudity, but every 15 pages you've got to keep that interest going.
1: Another influential director who got a start with Roger Corman was Francis Ford Coppola.
2: I made the most vulgar, entertaining, exciting, actionful, sensoramic, uh gimmick, new thrill every five minutes. Have it everything. Sex, violence, humor. Because I want people to come and see it.
1: In an interview he gave after The Godfather became an international sensation he described his willingness as a young college student to do anything to get to make more films and the best opportunity was in the field of the exploitation film by which i mean nudie science fiction and horror films coppola went on to describe his first job with roger corman a remake of the russian science fiction film nevozoiat just think a new world is almost within
2: our
0: grasp
1: In one of the saddest commentaries on the taste of the American film going public, as well as on the integrity of those who make our films, he remembered, I knew that the Russians made very warm, brotherly love science fiction films, and that no one in this country would ever want to see a science fiction picture that didn't have a lot of sex and violence in it. In one scene, for example, a Russian astronaut sees the figure of a golden astronaut, a symbol of hope, standing on a crag. It was really lovely. Roger said, we've got to put two monsters on that crag. He wanted one monster to be a male sexual symbol and the other to be female. Obviously, one had to devour the other. We said to Roger, this is just too much. You can't just... But we could and we did. Matting in Sex and Violence, where the Russians had the golden astronaut of hope now, a few moments of gratuitous sex and violence. The real problem isn't some secret conspiracy of communists, Satanists, or some other off the wall special interest group. In large part, the media man is simply giving us what we pay for. And from this, we can learn two very valuable lessons. One, that the Bible got it right when it said, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And, two, the problem isn't ultimately with Hollywood, it's with us. And that is where the solution is going to have to begin. We'll talk more about our responsibility and what the church can do to reform the media industry in Lights, Camera, Blasphemy, the last tape in the Hollywood collection. Before we leave this section, however, I want us to briefly examine the dominant philosophy of art that floats around the periphery of the industry. Because while the bottom line may be the bottom line, there are still those who cling to the truth that music and film, as art forms, should mean something. And for these artists, there's another purpose for their craft besides simply filling movie theaters.
2: Monster of energy. It's a monster. If it senses fear, it'll eat us instantly. If it kiss it without fear will take us through the garden, through the gate, to the other side.
1: In Academy Award-winning director Oliver Stone's film, The Doors, Jim Morrison was resurrected as a cultural icon, a shaman whose philosophy of life and art was presented as a key to understanding the profound cultural changes that overtook America in the 60s. More importantly, however, Morrison's desire to break on through to the other side, to shatter what were perceived to be the artificial and repressive limits of truth and morality imposed by Christianity, to travel in William Blake's words, the road of excess, in hope that it would lead to the palace of wisdom, became, by Stone's own admission, the paradigm that was to guide his own life and art.
2: Yes, son? I want to kill you.
1: I want to. And Oliver Stone is far from alone in viewing the role of the artist in this way. Without question, this philosophy, in one form or another, provides the very foundation for the brave new world being fashioned by the media elite. This philosophy is perhaps best described as the cathartic view of art. The idea that the best and bravest way to come to terms with the dark passions of the human heart is to simply embrace them, to give them detailed expression through the medium of film or music. For these high priests of Hollywood, the writer, the director and the musician are there to lead us into the heaven that presumably lies waiting beyond the gates of hell. Nothing
0: to be feared but to look inward, to see that twisted mind that lies beneath the surface of all humans and to say yes i accept you i even love you because you're a part of me you're an extension of me
1: this scene was shot for apocalypse now francis coppola's epic translation of joseph conrad's heart of darkness for coppola this journey into night became a metaphor for not only america's struggle in vietnam but the journey of both artist and audience into the dark light of being.
0: The film Frances is making is a metaphor for a journey into self. You have to fail a little, die a little, go insane a little to come out the other side.
1: Cat Rubin echoed this philosophy when she described the response she sought to evoke through the dark and troubling Poison Ivy. I feel that, as a director, I have to provoke to take everything to the farthest extreme I can, to get what I want across.
2: Honey, I'm I'm glad you're awake. What a dumb, sick jerk I've been. Which little party are you afraid of me ruining?
1: The same orientation guides Barbet Schroeder, the acclaimed director who brought us Barfly, Single White Female, and Matresse, a French film that explores another world of sadomasochistic sex. By his own admission, Schroeder is a student of perversity, most specifically the bizarre sexual practices of occult philosopher Havelock Ellis. He remembers that he came to the conclusion very young that if you only have one of Havelock's perversions, you're a prisoner. But I want the intensity. So I want to have them all at the same time. Where the have you been? Jennifer Jason Lee, the co-star of Single White Female described both Schroeder and his art when she observed that he was a man who can seriously go into the dark side of things and enjoy it and have compassion and feelings for this darkness. God. 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 God? My Own Private Idaho is another movie that exists for no other reason than to embrace this darkness. The Unrelentingly Bleak Tale of Two Male Prostitutes, this critically acclaimed film is an exquisite realization of director and screenwriter, Gus Van Sant's artistic vision. As he told one Hollywood reporter, I believe the properly manipulated image can provoke an audience to the Borosian limit of riot, rampant sex, instantaneous death, even spontaneous combustion. The raw materials of inspiration include elements as primal and potentially frightening, as violence, sex, and death. Martin Scorsese, perhaps America's foremost director, echoes Sant in both style and philosophy, acknowledging that his films are cathartic, therapy for his personal anger and rage and craziness. And Adrian Lynn, director of Fatal Attraction in Nine-and-A-Half-Weeks, deliberately explores the dark corners of the human psyche as a way of speaking to something lurking somewhere inside all of us.
2: Is rewriting really censorship, Bill? Because I'm completely... It f- is. Exterminate all rational thought. That is the conclusion I have come to.
1: And last... But certainly not f- least, acclaimed director David Cronenberg begins be like Naked Lunch, his hallucinatory exploration of art and existentialist reality with the quote, nothing is true, everything is permitted. A statement the movie tries hard to live up to as the so-called hero transcends the contrived limitations of both life and art by, among other things, killing his wife, Music. becoming a homosexual, for and injecting roach-killer into his veins. In an interview with Rolling Stone, Cronenberg discussed the themes that Naked Lunch sought to explore. Nothing is true. Morality is not absolute. It's only a human construct, very definitely able to change and susceptible to change and rethinking. And you can then be free. Free to be unethical, immoral, ultimately. If you're an existentialist and you don't believe in God and the judgment after death, then you can do anything you want. You can kill, you can do whatever society considers the most taboo thing. In the same interview, Cronenberg was even more overt about his priestly ambitions when he stated, yes, I'm putting art in opposition to religion or as a replacement for religion. These are among the more notable and influential artists who point to catharsis as a rationale for their shameless excursions into what was once forbidden territory. Many other artists, including musicians and writers, throw out variations of the same theme. Whether they use it as just a good-sounding excuse or embrace it with all the ardor and messianic zeal of a David Cronenberg, the bottom line is still the same. Black is still black and God still calls it sin. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. The Bible is quite clear as to the root of man's moral confusion. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it?
2: I don't know where these thoughts are coming from. I can't keep them out of my head.
1: Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord judges the heart. In other words, as human beings, we have an uncanny ability to justify the sins that our fallen nature drives us to embrace. Apart from the truth and grace of God, we are left in darkness, damned because of our unrepentant rebellion, and unable to sincerely come to God for forgiveness because we see nothing really wrong with our actions. We are left utterly helpless, dependent upon a God who has chosen to reveal his truth and grace through the Bible and through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where today's artists echo the words of the 19th century poet and playwright Oscar Wilde that the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it, this Messiah taught us instead to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil where the prevailing philosophy of art recoils at the very mention of sin or moral absolutes, clinging passionately instead to the idea that all our desires are natural and good and that the only real evil is to attempt to deny or suppress them. The holy scriptures tell us in a thousand places and in as many ways, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. To be spiritually minded doesn't mean that we're to pretend we're disembodied spirits, disconnected from the realities of our earthly lives. Quite the contrary. To be spiritually minded is to pray and live for the will of our Heavenly Father to be done on earth as it is in heaven. To view creation redemptively, sacramentally, as a universe yearning for the sons and daughters of God to reflect the light of His glory. While we long for Christ's appearing, knowing that the kingdom cannot fully come until the King Himself returns, we nevertheless strive to occupy until His return, enjoying and serving this world, loving it with the same love with which He loved us. In the realm of movies, drama, comedy, music, and art, it means creating, enjoying, and commending good art as a reflection of God's beauty, as a glimpse into His mysteries, as an incarnation of His thoughts. But at the same time, we understand we live in a fallen world, enemy-occupied territory, as C.S. Lewis put it, where we are waging a war of divine sabotage against the prince of the air. For this reason, to be spiritually minded is to recognize, reject, and then expose bad art as Satan's twisted propaganda. We are called to persuade those locked in its deceptions so that they may come, perhaps to their senses, and escape from the dungeon of his lies. This is all part of the Great Commission, our marching orders from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's given us the necessary authority, but we'll never be able to do it if we keep listening to the lies, hanging out in the dungeon, inhaling the smoke of hell's dark flame.
2: Something sacred. So I went to a
1: psychic. I'll enjoy making you. A
2: man is a lot of things, but he's not a virgin.
1: If America ever needed the church to rise up, it's now. Voices today, sacred and secular alike, are prophesying the end of the American dream. We stand at a crossroads, a valley of decision, where we must choose whether this experiment in freedom we call America means the simple freedom to do whatever we want or the more complex freedom that comes from self-denial and faith in a holy God. Increasingly, we have chosen the former, and certainly, it has become the context in which today's media man performs the vast majority of his magic. To some degree, this allegiance is ideological. To a larger degree, however, it's due to our compliance. The images they're shining on the wall are the ones we're paying to see. But regardless of the motivation, as we have kissed the serpent's tongue, we are more and more seeing what happens to a people whose God is themselves.
2: I am God. I am God. I am
0: God. I
1: am God. Heaven now waits for the church's reply.